Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, really glad you're with us for the Monday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Good, bad, and crazy martinis for you today. Uh, Brought to you in part today by Moink. Uh, love the Moink box. We've both uh, gotten it. The steaks are fantastic. Uh, the chicken's fantastic. The bacon, by far the best, though. And also, the thing you want to know is that Moink does it the right way. Did you know 60% of U.S. pork production comes from one company owned by the Chinese, and their hogs are given something called ractopamine, which is banned in 160 countries? Yeah, you're never going to have to deal with that with Moink. They do it the right way. Moink delivers grass-fed and grass-finished beef and lamb, pastured pork and chicken, and sustainable wild-caught Alaskan salmon straight to your door. Moink farmers farm like our grandparents did. And as a result, Moink meat tastes like it should because the family farm does it better. And the difference is a difference you can taste and you can feel good knowing you're helping family farms stay financially independent too. Now you choose the meat that you get delivered in every box from ribeyes to chicken breasts to pork chops to salmon fillets and so much more. Plus, you can cancel anytime. Yeah, like we said at the top, uh, the bacon is phenomenal. All the meat is phenomenal. There's nothing in the Moink box that you're not going to love. Uh, And remember that Moink is helping to save rural America as well. So I love it. Jim loves it. You'll love it too. So join the Moink movement today. Keep American farming going by signing up at moinkbox.com slash martini right now. And listeners to the Three Martini Lunch will get free filet mignon in every order for a year. That's one year of the best filet mignon you'll ever taste, but it's only for a limited time. Spelled M-O-I-N-K box. Box.com slash martini. That's moinkbox.com slash martini. All right, Jim, let's uh, talk about our good martini now. And uh, some folks might listen to this and say, why is this a good martini? Wouldn't Joe Biden be the easiest person to beat in 2024? He would be easy to beat, uh, that's for sure. However, we are looking at a Democratic Party that is slowly and not so quietly, Jim, wanting something different in 2024. But as we've talked about before, Their bench is not uh, incredibly deep, but uh, let's start with where we are with Biden. We've seen a number of polls now with uh, the general population very low on whether they want Biden to run for a second term. And even uh, a plurality of Democrats don't want that. But now a new poll from The New York Times shows that just 33 percent of uh, Americans approve of Biden's job performance and nearly two thirds of Democratic voters want a plan B in 2024, Jim, and I'm starting to get the impression they really wish it was a plan A. So, I mean, Biden's numbers have been in the tank since Afghanistan, which is coming up on a year now. They have not improved. More and more problems have piled up. And it sounds like even his own uh, loyalists have decided this isn't the guy that can either win or fix this stuff. Yeah. And it's going to be uh, last week in the morning, Jolt, I had laid out that one of the many, many problems facing the Democrats, but really a big one, is not just inflation, but that inflation was exacerbated by a policy that just about the entirety of the Democratic Party wanted. One member of the House voted against the American Relief Act, which threw another $1. trillion in spending into the economy, which was already recovering. Too much money chasing too few goods equals inflation. So the problem is it's, you know, Democrats are going to try to say, ah, oh, it's, it's the Putin tax hike, it's Putin inflation, and you know, try to point all these factors that are not their fault but at least one big factor was exactly their fault. And in fact, they were absolutely convinced it was good. And yes, there were some folks like Larry Summers who were saying, hey, don't do this, you're nuts, it's gonna set off a terrible inflation rate. 
Well, now the Democrats conceivably could be, you know, going to the public and saying, hey, remember in 2020 when we told you that Joe Biden was the greatest thing since sliced bread and that he was going to be a great president and he wasn't too old for the job and he wasn't uh, getting too far up there in years to be able to handle his duties and all that stuff. Totally wrong about all of that. But now we've got something else to sell you. You were just telling me how great the other guy was. He ran us into the ditch. The country's in a terrible spot. Why should we listen to you? So um, it is a bad spot. And I think, but you know, if people say, why is this the good martini? Wouldn't Biden be easiest to beat? Well, first of all, I think there are a lot of people who just love to see somebody else besides Joe Biden be president. And I think there are better options um, that that if you're going to put forth a, a question before the country of progressivism versus conservatism, uh, I see stronger, better options than this cranky old man mumbling to himself. Now, I, I think you're probably right about that. It just strikes me, Jim, that the Democratic base never wanted Joe Biden. They didn't want him in 88. They didn't want him in 08. They were going to go with Obama as a rock star, in their opinion, no matter who he picked as vice president. There was no real clamoring for Joe Biden in 2016. And from the early primaries in 2020, there was no excitement for Joe Biden. It was simply a, a decision uh, that this is the guy who can probably get us over the finish line better than Bernie Sanders or anybody else who was going to emerge from, from that crop of people. So he was always just kind of a, a timely tool as opposed to anyone that the base was actually excited about. Yeah, Greg, it may very well be that, you know, Biden was elected as a placeholder in 2020 because they just wanted somebody to beat Trump. And now Biden's time as the placeholder is coming to end. And actually, you look at his time in office, he really does seem like something of a paperweight. So, Jim, it seems like there's quite a bit of uncertainty uh, as it uh, pertains to 2024. But regardless of who's on the ballot, we want a system that functions well. And uh, that's one of the reasons we're brought to you today by the Presidential Election Project. Imagine a scenario in 2024 that's similar to 2020 with a lot of questions about irregularities in votes and maybe even debates and recounts of votes in key states. Except this time, it wouldn't be Mike Pence. It would be Vice President Kamala Harris being urged to interpret her role in the process as one where she has the right to determine which electoral votes count. And why? Because the Electoral Count Act just isn't specific enough. The Presidential Election Project wants to see this changed. Go to presidentialelectionproject.com now. Sign up to get updates, learn more about this very important procedural ceremony, and what steps Congress is taking to reform and clarify our electoral process. The project urges you to visit presidentialelectionproject.com and sign up to get updates so that by 2024, there's no question that Vice President Harris won't have the power to overturn those results. presidentialelectionproject.com All right, Jim, let's move to our bad martini now and... Folks may remember that we said on Friday that we don't talk about Japanese politics very much. Well, we talk about Sri Lankan politics even more rarely, but that's exactly where we are today. After that country is in complete uh, upheaval, economic conditions there are abysmal, as you lay out very, very well in today's uh, morning jolt. So there's uh, just been rampant unrest there, uh, people going after the homes of uh, political leaders and so forth, which we'll talk about uh, in just a moment. But here is the fact in your story today, just to give an impression of how dire things are in Sri Lanka. Uh, it says consumer prices rose 54.6% in June from a year earlier, with transport surging 128% from the previous month and food 80%. Jim, obviously, for most of the population, those sorts of uh, price increases are completely unsustainable. 
And the problem here is it's not just limited to Sri Lanka. As you point out today, again, in the morning jolt, uh, this is becoming a problem in a lot of other places as well. And so we could be looking at a bigger and bigger problem. And by the way, if you'd said to me, Jim, do you expect to be running about Sri Lanka in the near future? Up until a few days ago, I did not. I probably would not have said so. The main thing I could have told you about the country was that it was where Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom was filmed. Uh, they, you know, Spielberg and Lucas had a script and had the thing, the whole story taking place in India. The uh, Indian government did not like it and wanted to rewrite the script. And they looked at you know Sri Lanka and said, that looks kind of like India. That'll do. And they ended up filming there. Um, so the interesting thing is, you're like, oh, you know, if you heard about Sri Lanka, maybe you heard about the tsunami back in 2004. Uh, they had a terrorist group called the Tamil Tigers who they were fighting for a bunch of years. You might think, ah, you know, third world, it's a mess. Well, as my, my colleague Dominic Pino pointed out, really for the last decade or so, it had been uh, fairly prosperous. You, you wouldn't say it was a wealthy country by any stretch of the imagination, but by Asian standards, the standard of living was starting to grow. And it was kind of classified it less as a poor country or a middle class country. It was kind of starting to creep into what we consider the upper middle class, at least by the standards of the continent of Asia. Uh, and there are a couple of different factors that rolled into this. We should not point to only one factor. One that really should be, you know, front and center in our mind is that, you know, about a year ago, they said, you know, what, we're not going to use artificial chemical fertilizers anymore. This is a very big point on the green agenda. There are a whole bunch of environmentalists who say that these artificial fertilizers are bad for the world, bad for the earth, shouldn't be using them. So we should just use the organic fertilizer, more likely, you know, animal droppings and poop and things like that. And the problem is, is that that kind of fertilizer doesn't give you big crop yields. Um, and so there are all kinds of anecdotes in the early part of this year saying, yeah, they've been forced to only use this kind of fertilizer and the crop yields are just absolutely crashing. Now, if you know anything about, you know, <laughs> humanity, you know that hungry people are often an unstable people. They, you know, that is not a good formula for stable government, stable economy or, or anything like that. Now, they also has a currency crash. You laid out the absolutely horrific inflation numbers that make ours look mild. Um, it does, you know, the Russian invasion of Ukraine did not help. They are dependent on imports for certain factors. Uh, they are dependent upon Russian and Ukrainian tourism dollars coming to their beaches. Uh, they export some of their tea to Russia. There's a whole bunch of factors there. This was not a good uh, impact on the Sri Lankan economy. Also, they're badly managed. Yes, there's corruption. It is the third world. Um, but they've also got an energy crisis. And so you just kind of go down this list. And what everything that they're suffering there is a really severe version of the problems we have here in the United States. We have inflation. We have high food prices. We have high gas prices. They are having an energy crisis. They're having rolling blackouts. Um, and so you put all this together. We buy and we are a wealthy country. I know it may not always feel that way, but by, by world standards, we're an extremely wealthy country and we can deal with these shocks. Sri Lanka can't. When, when Sri Lanka gets hit with these kinds of shocks, people starve, right? And the real problem I mean, is, is this is very severe. It looks like they've overtaken the, uh, the, the compounds and housing of the prime minister and the president. Um, but I think what's really kind of worrisome is that, you know, Sri Lanka might be that canary in the coal mine. There are a bunch of other generally considered third world countries that have similar problems with debt and runaway inflation. Uh, some of them you may not think about very much called Zambia. Uh, some of them like Lebanon, you might think of a little more often, but the one, El Salvador, Ghana, Egypt, Tunisia. But the one that jumped out at me on that list was Pakistan because they have 165 nuclear weapons, at least as far as anybody can tell. And you run down and look at the state of the Pakistani economy. Maybe it was never great, but boy, it looks like it is an absolute basket case at this point. And uh, look, I don't want to see a severe economic crisis in a country that was never all that stable in the first place. 
and that has nuclear weapons. So we'll see how things go. But this is like the sort of thing we, we knew that the Russian invasion of Ukraine was going to exacerbate commodity prices and in particular food prices around the world. Now we're starting to see some of the after effects. And Sri Lanka may have been the first domino to fall. Yeah, it's the domino possibility that really bothers me on this one, because you get to bigger and bigger and bigger countries and uh, investors get spooked. And uh, that leads to a lot of turmoil potentially uh, in the markets. And so, Jim, I don't know, maybe Biden was getting updated on Sri Lanka's inflation rate. And that's why he kept saying that ours was uh, better than everybody else's. But uh, by anybody else in the world. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely out of control in Sri Lanka and uh, unfortunately other places likely as well. Uh, one more sponsor to tell you about today, brought to you in part by NetChoice. Uh, look, our country is being rocked, as we just said, by soaring inflation, lackluster leadership, to put it mildly, and chaos on the world stage. Americans need their legislators to focus on the issues that matter and ease the economic pain that we're all feeling. But instead, senators like Amy Klobuchar are pushing a big government takeover of America's tech industry through progressive regulations that would worsen inflation and make important digital services like Amazon Prime more expensive and harder to use. Conservatives must block progressive pet projects that will raise prices and undermine our world standing. These lawmakers need to keep American innovation the best in the world. Join us in telling Congress to stop rising prices and reject progressive tech regulations like S-2992. Learn more about this fight and send a letter to your representatives at netchoice.org slash 2992. This message was brought to you by NetChoice. All right, Jim, on to our final martini now, and we go back to uh, Japan and the horrific assassination of former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe uh, on Friday. Uh, We talked about that certainly on the podcast that day. And Jim... This happens way too often. The way the mainstream media will characterize a person we will describe as a totalitarian dictator or just uh, an evil person in in some way, shape, or form, it's far more kind, far more tame than people who actually do good in the world, like Prime Minister Abe. Of course, the most famous one is uh, the Washington Post referring to al-Baghdadi as an austere scholar in its headline, or uh, I can't remember if it was the the post, or I think it was the post, referring to uh, Soleimani when we made him a stain at the Baghdad airport uh, as revered in Iran. Yet uh, when uh, a conservative passes away, they get the treatment that you think should be reserved for communist dictators. But no, that's not the way it works. Uh, Here's CBS this morning uh, talking about Shinzo Abe, uh, calling him polarizing, right-wing nationalist, and a conservative whose opinions were controversial. Take a listen. Abe was Japan's longest-serving prime minister when he left office in 2020 due to ill health. A polarizing figure, he was a right-wing nationalist and conservative and a fierce supporter of Japan's military. He fought to amend the country's pacifist constitution in the face of the rising threat from China. While in office, Abe met former President Donald Trump several times to reaffirm Japan's military and trade alliances with the United States. His political opinions were controversial, but the country is united in shock and sympathy at the news of his death. Not to be outdone, NPR, which did pull this tweet, said former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, a divisive arch-conservative and one of his nation's most powerful and influential figures, has died after being shot during a campaign speech Friday in Western Japan. So, Jim, it seems legitimately possible to me that there are some people in our media 
who honestly see Republicans, or in the case of Shinzo Abe, someone who gets along with them on the world stage and thinks similarly to them on a number of key issues, is actually a bigger problem than people who sincerely repress their people, throw them in jail for dissenting against the government, or kill them. Yeah, I was going to say the, the description of the leader of ISIS as a, a st- austere religious scholar, it, it's kind of like... Um, I'm reminded of when the Romanian dictator Nicolae Ceausescu died. It was big news in, in the U.S. for about a week or so. And Sarah Live did a sketch in which she's at, at Ceausescu's funeral, where citizens had gathered and they were trying to think of something nice to say about him. And so they said he was about six feet tall, I think. And, you know, the occasional, you know, I think he had a lovely singing voice, you know, all kinds of things in which they were basolly desperate. They absolutely hated this guy. If we are trying, you know, it's question like, why would you bend over backwards to put a, to characterize the leader of ISIS, this bloody, brutal, uh, you know, almost animalistic, violent uh, force in the world that just spreads so much human misery? Why would you have to bend over backwards to kind of act respectful uh, towards someone like that? And similarly, Shinzo Abe, I mean, you could argue he's the most significant leader of Japan uh, since World War II. And, you know, did he have his share of controversy? Sure. Uh, but I, I, you know, my colleague Jonah Goldberg, you know, when we talk about nationalism, likes to point out that uh, nationalism has very different, con- you know, has a very different meaning in different, con- in different circumstances. We have good reason, looking at history, to be very worried about Serbian nationalism or Russian nationalism, or who knows, maybe even German nationalism. Um, but when it comes to American nationalism, when it comes to other countries, we don't have a reason. No, no one worries about, you know, there's this really unnerving uh, upswing in Canadian nationalism up there. They're, you know, marching around their poutine or something like that. You know, um, different countries have different natures then. And so you, could you make the argument that uh, Shinzo Abe was a Japanese nationalist? Sure. But that's not to say that he's, the, you know, the, both, it was both Shinzo Abe and Slobodan Milosevic were technically both nationalists, but they, you know, that came out in extraordinarily different ways. So it may <laughs> yes. not be the most useful you know, label and all that kind of stuff. And my sneaking suspicion is the average American, unless you're, a, unless you're on the Japan beat, unless you really are paying attention to Asian politics, my guess is the average American journalist doesn't know that much about Shinzo Abe. They know he's not in the news. You know, he has a summit with the U.S. president. Maybe you get an article too, but by, by and large, we don't spend a lot of time paying attention to Japanese politics. So when you see Abe getting along with Trump, well, he must be one of the bad guys. <laughs> now, I, you know, Abe had you know, an occasionally tense relationship with uh, Barack Obama, um, but it was not you know, uh, you know, by out, out of, out, wildly out of step or, or you know, confrontational or anything like that. Um, and so it's just, it, it's really frustrating. You have the sneaking suspicion that almost all of our politics is written about and described and articulated by people who are, I hate to say it, but somewhat provincial. They can't see it outside of the lens of U.S. domestic politics. And there's this very oversimplified binary sense that somebody's either a good guy or a bad guy. And very often, whether they're a good guy or a bad guy, very much depends on their relationship with Trump. I think you can now, now that we've seen the trucker convoys and all that stuff, I think you can say Justin Trudeau is not always such a good guy. But he's young and handsome and progressive. So, of course, the U.S. media, by and large, treats him with kid gloves. Um, There's just this really frustrating sense in which we are having the news brought to us by people who don't really bother to take the time to do their homework and actually learn about it and the figures they're writing about. And as a result, you get this, you know, ludicrously kind description of the leader of ISIS and this ludicrously negative description of the leader of Japan. Yeah, you got me thinking, Jim. Do you think if Barack Obama had ordered the, uh, the takedown of Baghdadi? 
Uh, he, I, I, he never would have gone after Soleimani. But uh, if he had ordered the takedown of Baghdadi, uh, do you think the headline would have been a little different there? Oh, yeah. We, we, I, I'm going to say I remember, in addition to Zero Dark Thirty, with the, movie, the, the big, you know, released in theaters movie, which has uh, Panetta in it for a scene, I think. But, you know, and, and Obama's kind of this background figure. I don't think there's anybody who has, he's in that. But there was one that came out right before Election Day 2011. It was produced by, I believe, Harvey Weinstein. Ran on basic cable, one of the basic cable stations. It was a dramatization of the raid, much lower budget. But as the SEALs are returning from the mission with these exhausted looks on their faces and the music is swelling, they ran uh, audio clips of Mitt Romney saying that bin Laden was just one man and that getting him was not the central point of the war on terror. That, that they, the propaganda doesn't get any more clear. Like, yes, I'm very glad that Barack Obama issued the order to go kill bin Laden. They, it was a gamble. They were not 100% sure he was in that compound, made the right choice. They got him. Let's remember Joe Biden was also arguing against it, apparently. Um, but it's just kind of fascinating the degree to which, you know, well, a Democratic president who takes out a terrorist, that is an American triumph and one that is worth to be celebrated and, you know, feel, you know, feel proud to be an American. But if a Republican kills a terrorist, well, isn't that kind of warmongery? <laughs> just unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable. Jim, quite a start to the week. Uh, let's see what we can come up with tomorrow. See you then. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Uh, do subscribe to the podcast if you don't already and tell your friends about us as well. Also, uh, thank you very much for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep those coming. They're a huge help to us. Also, get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Monday and join us again on Tuesday for the next Three Martini Lunch. Anti-human trafficking warrior Rossi Orozco joins me to explain how open borders are leading to a huge increase in human trafficking into our country and the horrific sexual exploitation of women, girls, and boys. I'm Sarah Carter. On the latest Sarah Carter Show, Rossi will explain how the trafficking process works and how big of a business it is for the cartels. It's a tough story that we all need to know. Follow the Sarah Carter Show at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.